Good morning. We are the Smith family. This is my wife, Tessa. I'm Jonathan. Noah, my daughter, Tamron, Salem, and Naaman. And we are going to lead you this morning in the Advent reading. Um, last week, we lit the first Advent candle, the candle of hope. Today, we light the second candle, the candle of peace. As we do, we remember the peace that Jesus brings to each of us a peace that surpasses understanding. We also long for the time when God's perfect peace will be made complete and will, become, and will bring an end to all fighting and war, a time when all creation will rest in the peace of our Savior. Isaiah 2, 4 says, He shall judge between the nations and shall decide disputes for many people, and they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn more anymore. Our teaching series throughout Advent will draw from passages in the book of Matthew. We invite you to stand for today's reading from Matthew 3, 1 through 12. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah when he said, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord. Make his path straight. Now John wore a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locusts and wild honey. Then Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region about the Jordan were going out to him, and they were baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance, and do not presume to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these sons to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the, root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, but the chaff he will burn with an unquenchable fire. Let's pray. Jesus, you are peace even in the storm. You are peace even when there is chaos. You are peace even when there is hatred. Help us to forgive like you when we are hurt or wounded. Bring peace into our hearts and make us agents of your peace in our world. Open our eyes to see you, our hearts to know you, and our ears to hear the words you have for us today. Amen. Well, you may be seated. I'm glad you're here today. I'm glad to be here uh, with you. My name is Nate. I'm the lead pastor here at New City. It is uh, great to celebrate this Advent season with you. So the question we are asking during Advent this year is, what child is this? Uh, there are uh, a few answers to that question that we'll be uh, providing uh, throughout the series. So last week, uh, Pastor Roger uh, gave the message, and he talked about Jesus is the child who brings hope to the hopeless. 
Uh, today, we'll be talking about how Jesus is a child who brings peace uh, to chaos. Uh, we, we'll talk next week about how Jesus is a child who brings joy to the sad hearts, and we'll talk about how Jesus is a child who brings love to the lonely, and then uh, we will have a candlelight uh, Christmas Eve service, which I hope you'll invite some friends to. It's going to be phenomenal. It's going to be a great night. All right, so Christmas brings out a little crazy in all of us, all right? Is anybody with me on that? Uh, there's a, you know, Christmas has this capacity to bring out a little bit of your nutty side, uh, because if you're like me, uh, I'm hoping you're not, but if you are like me, uh, there are uh, high hopes, high expectations for Christmas season. Uh, you have them for your family, you have them for the celebrations, you have them for uh, you know, the, the guests that you're having over, uh, for all of your celebrations of Jesus and your Christmas unwrapping and all that. You want it to go smoothly, you want it to go well, uh, but there are often, you know, in that attempt to make everything great, uh, there's a little bit of psycho that comes out of you. And uh, it's true of me. We sing songs like this, you know, at uh, Christmas season. We sing, silent night, oh holy night, you know, all is calm, all is bright, round yon virgin, mother and child, holy infant, so tender and mild, sleep in heavenly peace. And I, I love that song. I love the tone of that song, but I know that it is also not uh, a true feeling of my holiday expression often. And I, I saw online some parents that uh, had decided to send out a Christmas card uh, they titled Silent Night. And so they got their Silent Night somehow. And so maybe, you know, maybe use whatever strategy you need to get your Silent Night. Uh, we sing th songs like We Three Kings of Orient are, bearing gifts. We uh, tra traverse afar. Now, I have uh, you know, gone to bear some gifts. I've traversed into the mall uh, to receive uh, you know, the blessing of buying some gifts, but I don't know uh, if you have, uh, maybe this has happened to you. Okay, you're watching a TV show and you see a character on a TV show and you go, I get that person. I think they, I think they studied my life and wrote this character. Uh, I think I inspired the, the character they wrote into the story. And for me, uh, it is this character. And maybe you have, maybe you have him in your, uh, a little bit of that, a little Ron Swanson in your life, right? I traversed into the mall after 10 minutes. I had the feeling I hate the public. The public is stupid. Uh, maybe, maybe you can relate to that. I can. No, pastor, that's cynical. Uh, yes, it is. And I am a cynic. All right. So few seasons have the power to remind you of how not okay you are like the holiday season. A uh, few seasons have the power to do that. Uh, for example, uh, so there's another character uh, that I identify with, uh, you know, quite frequently during the holiday season. In fact, we watch Christmas Vacation, that movie, every Christmas Eve as we wrap gifts. It's a, it's a holiday tradition in our home. And so Vanessa and I will kick that on. We'll watch that as in the background as we're, you know, uh, wrapping gifts because inside of me is a little Clark Griswold. I have him living inside of me uh, and all of the things of Christmas. In fact, we go hunt our Christmas tree uh, like the Griswolds did. And here's a picture of the Griswolds getting their Christmas tree. Our, our, our journey to find our Christmas tree in the mountains of the Hamas uh, is almost the same every year. In fact, this year we went to the, the Hamas to cut down our Christmas tree and I even forgot my saw, just like the movie. And so it was like, wow, I am Clark Griswold. And we're hiking through the snow and the kids are like, dad, let's find any tree, any tree will do. And I'm like, no, uh, you know, snow's coming up to their kneecaps and their, their knees. And I was like, it's got to be the perfect tree, children. That's the way it goes at Christmas because it's a competition and I must win it. And uh, we will win the Christmas tree competition. And so we're out there looking for the best tree and other people are looking too. And the fear that I have is that those other people who are looking will find the best one and I'll miss out. So I've got to be, you know, first. And so we're out there hunting for the Christmas tree. We did slay the tree. Here's a picture of us dragging our tree. That's the Instagram moment uh, that I did share 
share on Instagram, what you don't see are the kids crying because they're, you know, they, they, I risked frostbite, you know, uh, to find that tree. And they were all like freezing cold. We did have chocolate and turkey soup after that. But there is an Instagram reality, right? And then there is a real reality. And those two things are not always the same. You see, uh, the, the real realities during the holidays are often covered up by the pageantry, but our sense of the brokenness doesn't seem to go away. It, you, you may have had this experience during a holiday season where family comes to town. It's really great to have family around, um, but probably the better than the day your family arrives is the day your family leaves, you know? It's like, wow, you know, it's great to have you here. I'm glad you're gone, you know? And uh, is that wrong to say? I hope not. Uh, you know, so, sometimes you feel that, you know? You feel like, man, sometimes there is a rub that happens in the holidays, and that rub is just sort of the revelation that things are not the way they ought to be. Things are a little bit broken. Things are broken in my family. Things are broken in my home. Things are broken in my neighborhood. And you just kind of get to see it. Things are broken in the world. And I think the contrast between how things should be and the way that things are is rarely stronger than during the holidays. You just have this sense that things are not the way they ought to be. In fact, I think there's a background logic that plays out in our mind, not just during the holidays. It happens, I think, on a regular basis. Uh, we are all sort of doing a very similar sort of thought evaluation. We look out to the world and we say, things, <laughs> things ought to be a certain way. And we sense it. Sometimes those are like false expectations of like this you know, storybook holiday season. But sometimes they're like real expectations, like my family should get along. Like we, we should be at peace. There shouldn't be violence happening in our community or our home and our world. And we look at the world around us and we go, things ought to be a certain way. And then you say, things are not how they ought to be. And then, you know, if you have any kind of sort of, you know, move in your heart for justice in the world, then you'll say, somebody should do something about this, right? And it'll be kind of like this sort of, sort of conviction that, yeah, somebody, somebody should do something about this. But, you know, what happens in the holidays is that you'll, you'll have this sense about your family or have this sense about, you know, sort of your, your history, your story, and you'll say, man, somebody should do something about this, but it wouldn't be polite, you know, <laughs> right now in this season at this time to say something about what needs to be said, you know, and so we, we, kind, of, we kind of stray away from saying it or from addressing it and, and, or maybe put it off for another time. But prophets are the people at the dinner table who say the thing that everybody is thinking, but everybody's too polite to say. And John the Baptist shows up in history as the prophet who's going to say the things that people are too polite to say. He's a little rough around the edges. In fact, prophets are always like that. They're rough around the edges. And John the Baptist shows up in this passage proclaiming a message that is strong, uh, a message that is a, a message of rebuke, a message of confrontation. In fact, in those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea. This was his message, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. And so he says, hey, guys, uh, things are not okay. You're not okay. You need to repent and turn to, turn to God. And he's, he's the one stepping up and saying, somebody has come to do something about what's not right in the world. There are some things that are not right in the world, but the king, he's coming. He's coming to do something about it. And I am the prophet who's come before him to prepare the way for the king who's going to bring peace to chaos. And that's John's uh, message. That's what he's uh, meant to do. Uh, Michael Green, his commentary in this passage says, people did not know how to handle prophets. Uh, nobody wanted them in their front room. And that is usually the way of the church. A prophetic voice is an embarrassment. It is rarely welcomed within the walls and plans of the establishment. So John the Baptist operated in the desert of Judea and became even tougher and more bizarre uh, than he had been at the start. And so prophets are weird, uh, which is why I think verse 4 exists. 
Now John wore a garment of camel's hair and leather belt around his waist, and his food was locusts and honey. He lived way out in the desert of Judea because nobody wanted them at his dinner, their dinner table because he's a prophet, and prophets are disruptors, and he lived out in the wilderness as a disruptor, and he is being disruptive, saying, hey guys, it's time to repent because God's at work doing something new, and the king is coming, and he's going to do this new work, and he's going to address the chaos in the world. He's going to bring peace uh, to the chaos. And I think in this text, there are four symbols that set the stage for Christ's arrival uh, that are helpful for understanding the flow of this text, the road, the water, the axe, and the fire. And I think these uh, four symbols will help us to better understand uh, the message of John and also how to prepare ourselves for the coming of King Jesus. So the road, the road is about preparation. The road is about being ready. And John's message essentially was this, prepare yourself, uh, the king is coming. Uh, you, you don't have to think hard about this. I mean, whenever the president comes to town, there is a forward team, a team who comes ahead of him to prepare the way. And in uh, ancient times, if a king was coming uh, through a certain region, there would be a team that would go ahead to make sure the way was prepared, the roads were flat, and there was a passageway, and things were safe. And John the Baptist is the one who goes before the king to prepare the way. And so you see in verse 3, for this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah, when he said, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, that's John, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. And so John is coming to say, the king is coming prepare yourself, get ready. And so just in a matter of sort of self-reflection, how would you prepare if you knew that someone very powerful, someone you admired greatly, wanted to come to your house for dinner? How would you prepare? Would you prepare differently? Now, I, um, I will admit, we host a lot of parties at our house. We like to have parties. I enjoy having parties. It's one of my favorite things. In fact, sometimes my wife has to say, no more parties, and, and because I like them, and I enjoy having people over and having a good time. And, uh, and there have been occasions when our life is really busy and we're throwing parties and we've got to get ready in a hurry. And uh, I don't know if you've ever done this before, but on occasion, you know, you just kind of just, okay, let's throw it in the closet, throw it in the closet, you know, and it doesn't go away, it just goes in the closet. I've had, we actually have had on occasion put our dirty dishes in the oven uh, to hide them <laughs> so the guests couldn't see them. And we found out because we turned the oven on uh, and forgot that we left, you know, stuff in the oven. But, you know, it's like you do things to hurry up to get ready because when you have people coming over, but man, if somebody special is coming over, it's a special occasion, you prepare especially. Uh, you have fresh eyes to look at yourself, to look at your house, to look at what needs to be addressed. And John's message, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand, was giving fresh eyes for self-evaluation to everyone who was waiting on the arrival of God's redemptive work. And there were many who were waiting. And in fact, that's the whole sort of theme of Advent is waiting. And so we're waiting for the arrival of Jesus. And if you flip back, we're in Matthew right now, but if you were to flip back in your Bible uh, past, uh, you know, sort of Matthew into the last book of the Old Testament, you'd run across Malachi. And if you went to Malachi chapter 4, the last chapter of the book of Malachi, you would see some promises, that the thing that people were waiting for. Uh, they were waiting for the coming of the king. They've been waiting for a long time for the God who's going to come make things right again. And so you see in Malachi 4.1, For behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven, when all the arrogant and all evildoers will be stubble. The day, is coming shall <laughs> the day that is coming shall set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. In other words, God sees all the injustice in the world and he's going to make it right one day. He sees all of the, the, the victims of violence in the world and all those who've been hurt by evil in the world. He's going to make it right someday. 
But for you who fear my name, the son of righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. And that's a key phrase. Rise with healing in its wings. Uh, if you go back in the Old Testament and you see kind of the, the Genesis story of everything that we, sort of everything in the Bible is based upon one particular narrative, and that's the Exodus narrative. The Exodus tells a story of a time when God's people were in slavery in Egypt, and then God rescues them dramatically. They cross on dry land as waters are parted, and they start their wilderness journey that ends them in the promised land. That's kind of the formative story of the Bible. And in that formative story, what happens in reflection is you look back and God says, I want you to remember how I bore you like on wings of an eagle, how I rescued you on wings. I want you to remember my rescue narrative. And you have to see this in this light. But for you who fear my name, the son of righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings and you shall go out leaping like calves from the stall. Do you remember the rescue mission that I did in, in the Exodus? God's going to do another rescue mission. It's going to be an ultimate one. Behold, I will send you Elijah. This is a prophet who is like Elijah, the prophet before the great and awesome day of, that the Lord comes. This is John the Baptist, the one who's going to come as the Elijah who's going to prophesy ahead. He's going to be the one that's going to go ahead of Jesus and say, prepare the way. And so what's the key message? Jesus the king is going to bring peace, ultimate peace to the chaos. That's what he's going to do. He's going to come bring peace to the chaos. That's the message of John, Matthew 3.3. 3. For this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah, the voice, the one crying out in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord. Now, when you, when you, when you read a, a passage like this, especially in like the book of Matthew, where Matthew is, is writing this uh, particular uh, um, you know, sort of record of Jesus' life, he's writing it to Jewish people who have a certain understanding, uh, understanding of Jewish history and a, a certain sort of biblical literacy about them when it comes to the Old Testament. And so this quotation from Isaiah 40 it should be treated like a hyperlink. Like you click on it and you go, what else does Isaiah 40 say? Uh, what, 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 what should we be preparing ourselves for? What kind of preparation should we be doing? And so in Isaiah 43, you see that this is the passage being quoted in Matthew 3. In the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord. This is what the voice is crying. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. And then you go down to verse 9 of Isaiah 40. Uh, Isaiah 40, go on. Go on up to a high mountain, O Zion, herald the good news. Uh, lift up your voice with strength, O Jerusalem, herald of good news. Lift it up, fear not. Say to the cities of Judah, behold your God. The message here is going to be your God is powerful and your God is capable and he's going to do a new thing. Here's the message. Behold, the Lord your God comes with might in his arm, <laughs> in, his, in his arm rules for him. Behold, his reward is with him and his recompense before him. He will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms. He will carry them in his bosom and gently lead those that are with young. And you scroll down a little further, much of what happens next is just a whole bunch of saying, God's great and he's powerful. He's great and he's powerful. And in verse 28, have you not known? Have you not heard? The Lord is everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint or grow weary. He is, uh, his understanding is unsearchable. In other words, God is about to, he's going to do a new thing. And this new thing he can do because he's capable, thoroughly capable. He's the Lord everlasting. He's the creator of the universe. He doesn't get tired. His understanding is unsearchable. And just to kind of hit pause real quick to sort of for some personal reflection, I mean, God's about to break into history. 
know, Jesus is about to start his public ministry. He's about to break into history and do that new thing, preach that new message. He's going to come and preaching that message. The kingdom of God is at hand. The kingdom of God is going to come. It's going to advance. And one day we recognize that he's going to make everything new when he fully establishes his kingdom. Like that's, 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 that's what we're hoping for, what we're longing for. And we're celebrating at Christmas that God became a child, that he lived a perfect life, that he died on the cross for sins, that he was buried in the grave, and he rose again, conquering sin and death. Like we're celebrating miraculous events of history. But sometimes in our own stories, we feel like our own stories, our own narratives are beyond any outside power. Like we see our pain and we feel like our, our, our own sort of brokenness is determinative. Like it's, nothing can change this. This is, this is the narrative. We look at our own sort of broken marriage, and we look at our own broken relationship with our parents, we look at our own broken relationship with, you know, uh, sometimes this happens when in singleness even, you just feel like it's never going to happen for me. And we look at our own narratives, and we, we can just, we can get so dark. And every once in a while, you just need to realize that your Lord is the Lord everlasting. He's the creator of the ends of the earth. He's not tired. He doesn't grow weary. He has endless capacity. And his understanding is vast and unsearchable. He gives power to the faint. And to him who, is not, who has no might, he increases strength. Even youth shall faint and be weary, and young men shall fall exhausted. But they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up like on wings of eagles. There it is again. He will do a new thing. He will, make, he will bring a rescue. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. And every once in a while, you know, I just feel like I need to encourage you sometimes to get over yourself. It's not all about you. Um, don't do it on your own power. Don't be trying to, to bring the ultimate renewal of all things through your accomplishments. God is more than capable. Like lean into him. Seek, seek out his power. Seek out his capacity. Seek out his understanding. And so the symbols are the road, the water, the axe, and the fire. And what is the road all about? The road is all about being prepared. Prepare yourself. God's at work. He's about to do a new thing. And I should say, like, if you feel hopeless during the holiday season about whatever's going on in your life, I'd say prepare yourself. God's a miracle-working God, and He does miracles in people's lives. He does miracles in history, and that's what we're worshiping, you know, worshiping a God who is a miracle-working working God. What is the water all about? The water's all about repentance. That's how we prepare. We prepare through repentance. So we prepare ourselves for Jesus through repentance and water baptism. The message of John in verse 2 is repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The response you can read about in verses 5 and 6, then Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region about the Jordan were going out to him, hearing the message of repentance, and they were responding this way in verse 6, they were baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. So they were repenting, confessing their sins and being baptized. And it's important to understand that the baptism here had a very specific meaning. It was about whole life, uh, a whole life turning, a whole, a whole life repentance. So repentance isn't just merely feeling sorry for your sin. That's, that's not repentance. And many people have that kind of moment where they get found out because they've done something wrong or they really know that they've hurt somebody. And they get found out and they are met with sorrow, but that sorrow doesn't produce life change. The Bible says, for godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. In other words, it doesn't change the life. So repentance is not merely a change of mind. It's not merely a change of like sort of like, you know, it's not merely an emotional response. It's certainly not just, I, hey, I, di I didn't think that was wrong and now I think it's wrong. It's not a change, just a change of mind. It's a whole life change. Repentance is a whole life change. It's saying I was living in this trajectory 
and now I've turned and I'm going in this direction, whole, whole different place. So the water baptism of John was for the purpose of repenting of personal sin and receiving the kingdom of God personally. And this is uh, unique to this particular passage. When you, uh, when you see the rebuke of the, the Pharisees and Sadducees in verse 9, the rebuke is specific to the issue that, was, uh, that, that John is addressing. And he says, don't presume to say to yourselves that we have Abraham as our father. In other words, uh, don't presume that you are right with God simply because of your heritage. Uh, this was about repenting and preparing yourself for the coming of the king. That, that it was about as a faith response. Uh, one commentator noted it this way. So the baptism of John, John administered was something shockingly new. The Jews knew about baptism, but it was something to be administered to outsiders, to Gentiles. The baptismal bath was to wash away Gentile impurities. All members of the family went into the bath and washed themselves. They were then said to be born anew, and to have their sins cleansed, and, and, and other such phrases which were picked up in the New Testament understanding of baptism. And so this was shocking, this baptism ritual that John was administering, because it was ministered to outsiders. And John is saying, if you want to prepare yourself, you have, to, you have to really be prepared by repenting and turning to God and receiving God anew, afresh. He's doing something new. He's doing, something, he's doing, he's doing a, a new work in the world. And, and to receive that new work, you need to personally prepare yourself for that new work. So John's baptism in the Jordan was a way of saying, I'm not a Jew because I was born a Jew. I'm receiving the kingdom with my own personal faith. To, to strike the point more poignantly here, John was baptizing them in the Jordan, verse 6, and it's important to note that. So this, was a, this is not just any old river in town. This is an important river with lots of history. And John is baptizing in the Jordan because it's the Jordan that was crossed to get into the promised land. In the same way that God led that exodus back then, and he led the people through the wilderness wandering, and he led them with Joshua's leadership into the promised land, God is leading them into a new thing. This is the whole communication. A new thing is at work. And so when you look to Joshua chapter 3, the Lord said to Joshua, Today I will begin to exalt you in the sight of all of Israel, that they may know that as I was with Moses in the Exodus, I'll be with you as you go into the promised land. And then verse 80 says, And as for you, command the priest who bear the ark of the covenant, when you come to the brink of the waters of the Jordan, you shall stand still in the Jordan. So they're instructed to walk into the Jordan when it's at flood, flood stage, rushing by. And the, the priests are to, in an act of faith, uh, to go into the water, into the, the Jordan. And when they do go into the water, they realize what God is at work doing is stopping the water upstream at a dam. And he's actually stopping the water in the same way that he stopped the water in the Exodus. When they crossed on dry land, the, <laughs> Israel will now again cross on dry land into uh, the promised land. You read about it in verse 15 and following. As soon as those bearing the ark had come as far as the Jordan, and the feet of the priest bearing the ark were dipped into the brink of the water, now the Jordan overflows all its banks throughout the time of harvest, and the waters coming down from, uh, from above stood and rose up in a heap very far away at a dam. Now look at verse 17. Now the priests bearing the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord stood firmly on dry ground in the midst of the Jordan, and all of Israel was passing over on dry ground until all the nation finished passing over the Jordan. In other words, John is saying and baptizing in the River Jordan, God is up to something new again. N.T. Wright says it this way, John was plunging them 
in the water of the River Jordan as they confessed their sins. This wasn't just a symbolic cleansing for individuals. It was a sign of the new thing that God was doing in history for Israel and for the world. Over a thousand years before the children of Israel crossed the Jordan when they first entered and conquered the Promised Land, now they had to go through the river again as a sign that they were getting ready for a greater conquest, God's defeat of all evil and the establishment of his kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. And so the message of the road is a message that says, uh, prepare yourself, the king is coming. The message of the waters, repent, repent of your sins, he's coming. And the message of the Acts is Jesus takes sin seriously. To right the wrongs, uh, God has to take sin seriously. And Jesus is a king who vehemently opposes sin. He is opposed to sin. He's opposed to the things that are breaking apart the world. So even now, verse 10, the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. There will be judgment. Now, this is the place where I think a lot of pastors anticipate uh, the objection to God being, I don't like a God who judges. I like the words of Isaiah about God shepherding and bringing this flock together and rescuing on wings. I don't like the judgment pieces. But I don't really think that is the primary objection to God. It has been my observation through time that the, the, the bigger objection to God is not that he judges too little, it's that people think he, uh, he doesn't judge enough. See, I think many people have more conflict with God, not because they feel like he judges too much, it's rather they feel like God doesn't judge enough. He, he judges too little. They see the pain in the world and they go, why doesn't God do something about that? Why is he allowing that to happen? And the primary frustration uh, with God is that, that you look out to the world and you see that all this hurt and all this pain and all this suffering. You go, what's going on? Why isn't God getting involved? Why isn't he judging more? Uh, I feel the sense uh, for justice. Why doesn't God seem to feel that same sense for justice? And I've had many occasions in, in my life to come face to face with just, you know, evil things in the world. And, and it's kind of my side hustle is I represent an organization called Stadia. We uh, plant churches that care for children around the world. And so I just got back from Thailand where I took the pastors from Calvary Chapel. I took uh, Linya Heisek and Nate Heisek from Calvary Chapel to Thailand to look at some church planting opportunities particularly among oppressed people groups and uh, refugee communities from Myanmar coming into Thailand. Uh, so we met with Pastor Yoham, and Pastor Yoham is a, was a, a pastor that I immediately felt a connection to, uh, just a dynamite human being, uh, doing real good for real people. And it, there, there, is a, there is a need, I think, for justice workers, particularly in communities where uh, you have a class system dynamic at play, uh, like you do in, uh, you know, sort of cultures that have a long history of Buddhism and have a long history of sort of thinking of people as being, you know, some people as being, you know, sort of less valuable than others. We, like many Western thinkers have this benefit of having this sort of Christian-informed worldview that all humanity, all humanity is like innately valuable, but every culture doesn't possess that same identity, the same idea anyway. It's not living there in the, in the background. And uh, Pastor Johan is just a great dude who loves people and is preaching the gospel in hard places. And, and so I asked him, you know, what's a challenge that you have right now in your ministry? And he said, well, the Buddhists in my community just recently blew up my house and blew up my church. And I said, oh, uh, a challenge I have not faced. 
in life. Uh, they dropped bombs on his home and bombs on his house, and, and they began to introduce me to a girl who was just wonderful, young lady, just wonderful. Children's pastor, actually, the church that we met at. He drove down five hours from where he pastors to this place right across the border. We had we were in Thailand and Mesot. We crossed over uh, to Myanmar. Gave my passport to some stranger and then hoped to get it back later. And um, and so we went in and that's where we met with him and and he uh, uh, introduced me to this young gal that they rescued and she had become a Christian, uh, but her conversion was very violently opposed by her family and they began to beat her and then they actually imprisoned her in her own home, and until she uh, renounced the name of Christ and and. Uh, and so, you know, Pastor Johan and the elders of the church uh, led a rescue mission to rescue her. She's now the children's pastor of the church that we were meeting at. It's a phenomenal story. And, uh, and I was just like meeting, you know, people like that. And the, this, this, young, this young pastor was, uh, this, this next slide was a pastor that really grabbed my heart. He was, uh, go ahead and flip that, uh, Xander, if you would. Uh, this guy is just phenomenal. Uh, was working with a refugee community in a whole other whole nother place, but got wind through the organization that we partnered with that there was a real need in this community where people like live on a, a trash heap. And, uh, and so these people are sort of sorting trash. And I've been to like trash heap communities in various third world contexts, you know. And uh, I think what was unique about this one was its intersection with sex trafficking and sex trade. And so the reason why this church was started and why this pastor said yes to this is because uh, some sex traffickers had gotten wind of this community and they were offering... Um, kind of a monthly uh, payment plan. If you gave your child uh, to uh, for sex trafficking, then they would give you a monthly stipend to help feed your family. And so these people in poverty were making that calculus, and they were giving up one child to feed the rest of their children. And that child was being sold into uh, sex trafficking, sex trade industry. Uh, so when you walk into the community, you see like little girls like this little girl that in this next photo. Uh, these are kind of people at risk. And so this pastor. Uh, from Myanmar, decided that he wanted to move to this community and make a difference, and working together with another organization called Rafa House, which is a, a ministry that is solely about sex trafficking and helping rescue uh, mostly young girls, but also young boys who have been sold into sex slavery, um, started a, a preemptive program, and they call it the the, the Kids Club in Mesot, and so uh, this Kids Club is like this there's a, a building behind this is a church. Uh, this photo and the building to the right is like a kitchen. And basically what's going on is these folks are uh, preparing meals, feeding kids, training, giving you know economic development uh, to people who wouldn't otherwise have it. They're learning to be seamstress and, and you know what you know they have lots of sort of job development programs that are helping to get people sort of in uh, a place of economic security uh, from that uh, you know sort of trash heap, but for the purpose of saving them from selling their children or being sold into sex trafficking. And when you look at those evils in the world, and truly when you look at them, and I had three occasions while in, one in Bangkok and then two in a couple of the locations where, you know, I could have easily had said yes to go to some uh, massage parlor, you know, and participated in that, uh, in that industry. It's just, it, was, it was wild to me how overt it was in some of the communities that we were sort of traveling in. And I think the question of suffering really that we all wrestle with is why do I seem to care about this injustice more than God does? And I can't look at those little kiddos and go, this is okay, right? And I can't do that. And that's part of the reason why I'm there is to raise money. We did. We raised money to do good. I'm glad Calvary's going to come alongside and make an impact there. And I'm really, really you know, excited that I get to participate in raising money to care for people in poverty. That's a big thing for me, and I really am happy I get to do that. But I do care, and I do also recognize that God cares, because what fuels that for me is the message of the cross. Like, we have this real benefit um, as Christians of being able to look back at the cross of Christ and see a, an event in history 
when God said, I really care about sin and the brokenness in the world, and I came to do something about it. See, the cross is proof that God is far more invested in solving the problem of sin in this world than, than you or I ever will be. Like when Jesus, you know, the message of the Bible is Jesus lived a substitutionary life, meaning he lived perfectly, and then he died on the cross for sins, and so he paid the penalty for sin. He was buried in the grave, and he rose again, and he conquered the power of sin in, in our lives, and he's given us as a gift his righteousness, and that we receive that gift, and we walk in light of that gift, and so that, when that gift sort of impacts you, what that does is that it, it moves within you to live towards others the way Christ has lived towards you, and so you begin to sort of care, because you, and the reason that you care is because God has cared. He's gotten involved. He's gotten invested. He saw the brokenness in the world and said, I'm going to get involved. And so when that background sort of processing was going on, like the, this, the, the world ought to be a certain way. It's not the way it ought to be. Somebody should do something. The Lord Jesus did. He did something. He got involved. He invested himself in the history of the world. You see Isaiah 53 sort of prophesies about Jesus. It says, He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our sins. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. In other words, he's the king that brings peace through being the object of violence on the cross. And with his wounds, we find our healing. And so Jesus went under the acts of God's judgment so that we don't have to, do you see? He said, I'm, gonna, I'm willing to fix this. I'm willing to address it. And the way I'm going to address it is by becoming the object of violence to end all violence. I'm going to be wounded so I can bring healing through my wounds. But this, to be clear, the message of John is all sin will be judged. Either Jesus will be judged for your sin or you will, but Jesus takes sin seriously. And the one critique that you cannot wage against God is why doesn't God take sin seriously? Because he does. He takes sin very seriously. Why does he not care about the brokenness of the world? He does care about the brokenness of the world. And he's going to deal with it. But the, you have to see it in light of the grace of God, right? For our sake, God made Jesus to be sin, who knew no sins, that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And so we, we recognize that the great exchange of the Bible is that Jesus takes my sin and I receive his righteousness. That's the great exchange of the Bible. That great exchange is, is, is also made in light of the fact that God takes sin seriously. Sin has to be addressed. The things that are broken in the world will be addressed and must be addressed, and Jesus addresses them. And so we have the road that says, prepare yourself, and we have the water that says, repent. The act says that God takes sin seriously, and the fire says he's coming to do a new thing. The new thing is coming. And the pathway to purification is always through repentance of sin, but the new th uh, repentance of sin, but the new thing is coming, it's happening. I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, John says, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. Jesus will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. Now there's much debate about this text, about what fire means here. Some people think it means judgment. You can go read commentaries if you want to, uh, to, to see all the different ways in which people approach this verse. I think this verse is pointing to an actual event uh, where the Holy Spirit and fire show up at the same time. And that's in Acts chapter 2. There was a mighty rushing wind. The new thing has come. Jesus is raised from the dead. And divided tongues as a fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. It was the moment the new thing happened. 
In the same way at Mount Sinai where the law was given, there was a mighty wind, there was fire from heaven. In the same way at the day of Pentecost when God wrote the law on the hearts of men through the power of the Holy Spirit, there was a rushing wind and fire from heaven, and this new thing happened, a new covenant, a new engagement with God and humanity. But there are obstacles to repentance. To repentance. And I think there are two big obstacles in this text to repentance. And the two big obstacles are self-righteousness and materialism. And self-righteousness is a sense that I don't need God because there's nothing fundamentally wrong with me. And if you believe that, then you need a prophet in your life to point out your errors because nobody is perfect. Materialism is this ability that we all have, if we're Western American people, to satiate our every desire. And when we get involved in materialistic sort of pursuits, what happens is we just try to correct that feeling that I'm not okay by consuming more things. And when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees, Pharisees were people who felt morally superior, self-righteous because of the way they lived, and the Sadducees, who are the religious class who received benefit of the temple worship, who were wealthy and accumulated a lot of wealth and were materialistic, when, when John saw the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to him at his at, to, to his baptism, he said to them, you brood of vipers, you snakes, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. He says, don't you see, there's a lot of things in your way right now to actual repentance. And concluding his thoughts on this passage, N.T. Wright asks the question I think is important for all of us to ask of ourselves. Where do the roads need to be straightened out? What fires need to be lit to burn away the rubbish in, in, in his path, in the path of Jesus? Which dead trees will need to be cut down? And equally important, who should be summoned right now to repent? That repentance isn't just something that Christians do once and they're done. Repentance is a way of life. Like We recognize that we are sinners both in need of grace but also sinners who are recipients of grace. And we, don't take, we don't take sin lightly because Christ didn't take sin lightly. And so we live with a posture of repentance. And by the way, it's that posture of humility and posture of repentance that helps, that helps us to participate in the renewal work that God is doing. And the message that we've been preaching here is that Jesus is the king who brings peace, right? He brings peace to chaos. And I think it's, it, you, you don't have to think long, you don't have to burn a lot of calories thinking about this. The two greatest enemies to peace in the world are self-righteousness and materialism. I mean, the, the reason why there are struggles in your marriage is because you can't admit that you're wrong. And you can't repent and turn and change your ways. The reason why people are oppressed in the world and taken advantage of the world because self-righteous, entitled people take advantage of others who they feel superior to. Materialism has this, has this way of sort of creating an appetite with us that, that says consuming is the ultimate good, and we just keep consuming and consuming and consuming. In fact, if I were the enemy, I would turn Christmas season into a celebration of material wealth and entitled self-righteous expression. In fact, I think he has. Right? And so we, we have to be embracing a new way, like a new way of living. A new way of, of being that's in light of the cross of Christ, in light of the way Jesus has come to live. And what we try to do that as a community here, like we try to do that uh, as best we can. We're not perfect, but we, we, we try. And every year at Christmas, we typically will make a strong emphasis of caring for others. And, you know, the gift mart's one expression of that. But we've done other things over the years. And I want to thank you for giving to the gift mart because people in need will be given the dignity of buying gifts they couldn't otherwise afford for their children. I'm really grateful for that in our community, but we've done other things. You know, we've, we've looked out in the community and we've seen that, you know, in Albuquerque, for example, 
when you look at education and crime and the issues that we have in our own city, there's, there's a need. I mean, Jesus is the king who brings peace to chaos. There's a need for us to be peacemakers along with Jesus and to bring peace to the world and addressing the sin because sin matters. And he takes it seriously. We should do something about it, right? So in the worst state to be a child, we, the church ought to be a place to be a kid. I mean, I just really believe that. And so we, we set uh, a goal last year. I mean, the, uh, we started this just after Easter. Uh, we did this kind of thing as a church called Impact ABQ. And the big idea was we believed that we could be, you know, we could have the greatest impact in our city by strategically caring for children. And so we were raising some money to, to provide better for our, ch our children here by paying off a little bit of debt. And that was like $150,000. And we wanted to invest a lot of money into the needs of kids in our city. And so like a few months ago, we were able to give our first installment of, uh, to uh, ministry partners that care for children in our city. We gave away $30,000, and it was really awesome. And, uh, and so kind of the way it worked is that the first 100000 went to debt, the second 100000 was spent 50-50, and then after that, 100% uh, goes to kids in need in our city. And so I want to give you an update of where we are at Impact ABQ because December 13th, Friday, is the last day for this. Uh, so as of this morning, uh, our, our offerings for Impact ABQ, that's over and above our regular you know, sort of giving, was $221,578. It's pretty awesome. Yeah, praise God for that. Which means this week I get to write $30,000. Well, I don't get to write them. Somebody else does. I can't sign checks. But uh, somebody writes them. I, I, that almost sounded like, like we, we get to as a church. Okay, that's better. Whew. All right. Correct that one. As a church, we get to give $30,000 away to ministries that care for children in our city. Maybe more. Somebody gives more. Okay. And uh, I'm excited about that. Uh, you know, one of those ministries is the harbor. It's helping, you know, it's a teenage drop-in center, but they also, you know, under the, the scope of Dream Center, dealing with sex trafficking in our city, or Shine School Partnership is partnering churches and schools for common good purposes, or Ciudad de Gracia is a Spanish-speaking church plant reaching, you know, uh, <laughs> reaching people in our city. I mean, yesterday, Abiel came to get our, our heater because uh, they're having baptisms today. I'm just so proud of that church that we got the chance to, to participate with. It's so phenomenal. Ciudad de Gracia is a church that we planted just five miles from here. Uh, we, we're putting money, you know, in to care better for foster families and foster, you know, and help, helping to, to spur on adoption and foster care as a, as a matter of expression for our church. And I think that those are the right things to do because we worship a king who brings peace to chaos. Those are the right things to do. So I want to give you a couple a couple things, two, maybe three things, all right, to do in response to our, our, uh, our, our text today. One is search your heart. Find sin and repent. And this is a posture that should be a regular posture for you as a Christian, is just to do that, search your heart, to find sin and repent. Originally, I created a joke for this, for this particular slide. Uh, the joke I was going to tell you was that my favorite Christmas album is Mariah Carey's first Christmas album. And that I wanted to repent of that because I felt sad for myself. That's my favorite uh, Christmas album. Does anybody else like Mariah Carey's Christmas? Anybody? Okay, good. Got some therapy right here. All right, here we go. All right, just feeling feeling good. I got community. All right. Um, but seriously, I was preparing the message, and and uh, and I I felt convicted, uh, you know, personally about a sin in my life over the last week. And what what had happened was I so I'd had an experience with somebody that gave me. I, you know, it, uh, it was an experience with somebody that was a negative experience, and I relayed that experience a couple of times to some people, uh, and 
And what, what really felt terrible to me was that I was relaying that in a way that was truly gossipy. And, um, and I enjoyed it. Uh, you know, and I, I was, I just for a split moment was building my identity on tearing somebody else down. You know, it's just like one of those, and that's a seed, you know, it's a seed if you sow it for long enough. And that's what leads to the oppression of people and genocide, you know, if you let it you know, go long enough. But I was, for a moment, was finding my joy and being, you know, better than somebody else and thrashing them in my conversations. And I thought, you know what, I need to repent of that. And the reason I share that with you is because I really feel like we have to be, you know, we have to be leading out in this as a, as a, as a community of faith. Like we have to be leading out and being honest with ourselves about the things that we need to confess. Um, but we also need to believe in Jesus and receive his righteousness. I mean, we, we are not saved because we are good. We're saved because he has been good on our behalf. We're not saved because we have lived an acceptable life. We are saved because he lived an acceptable life for us. And so we have to be able to be skilled at both confessing our sin, but also receiving his righteousness and taking sin seriously in our life. Because Jesus takes it seriously. And if we didn't, then there wouldn't be justice work and there wouldn't be the, the good that we get to do in the city and in the world around us. And I'm glad that we get to do that good and I want to do that good and I want to participate in Jesus and bringing peace to the world. But the biggest obstacle in me to producing the peace that Jesus wants to bring is self-righteousness and materialism. Those are the biggest obstacles within me. So search your heart, find sin, repent, believe in Jesus, receive his righteousness, and if you haven't been, be baptized. You know, it'd be a great way for you to say whole life repentance. My whole life belongs to him. And uh, by the, in the Bible, baptism is a way of saying, I've died to the old self, buried away, risen to new life, uh, to the glory of my God. And so if you want to do that, uh, you can do that. We'll do baptisms in January, but you can do it sooner if you want to. Uh, you can let us know on the communication card in the app. Uh, you can let us know at the uh, welcome counter. You can just let somebody know, and we'll, we'd love to be able to talk to you more about that. All right, let's pray. Um, <clears throat> Father, I, uh, what's on my heart most like readily right now, like available to you, is I, I don't want, you know, I don't want a sermon that's just, uh, that, that doesn't produce what you want it to produce. I mean, I want, I want the text to do in my life uh, what it's meant to do, and I want it to do in all of our lives what it's meant to do. And I think uh, it's meant to lead us to humility and, uh, and expectancy and, and service of others, and all of that uh, is born out of our repentance and turning to you. And uh, I pray for courage, like for self-evaluation, right? the courage to look at ourselves through, you know, a prophetic lens that we might be able to say the things about ourselves that need to be said and that maybe you, you would bring healing to a marriage today because somebody was able to be honest um, with themselves and to not only repent but to seek forgiveness. And I just pray that you would do some miracle in someone's life that uh, they may be expecting, not, you know, not expecting you to show up and you just show up in some powerful way through their repentance and turning to you. So I thank you for moments that we have in life just to have honest conversations with ourselves, honest conversation with you and how your grace gives us courage to do it all. Because of your grace, we, our sin doesn't define us. Uh, your, your son Jesus defines us. So we confess, Lord Jesus, your righteousness is our righteousness. Uh, it's in your name, Lord Jesus, that we pray.